Good evening, Emily. <laughs> is it evening? I mean, it is right now, but who knows when someone may be listening to this. I... Uh, it's not the afternoon. It's after five. Well, Caitlin, um, <laughs> that is not what I was going to say. I think that I only really listen to podcasts in the morning. Oh, you know, 50-50 that that's the way that was going to go. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. I listen to them in the car. It is predominantly in the morning. But if I'm driving somewhere at night. I guess it's true. Road trips. I do listen to them on road trips, but I feel that I mainly listen to them while walking Neville, and my now you cute little puppy. Welcome to, uh, this is not our first October release, but it is an October release, so it's spooky. Um, another time and place constructing a period piece, which was recorded at the festival this June. I think you asked me this, what now makes a period piece? I do think that that is an interesting question. But what might be slightly more interesting to me, sure. maybe no one else, is at what point does a time period become period? You know, right now we're in the 2020s. At what point do the 2020s become what would be considered a period piece? Okay. Because it's already a time period. It's just not. I think there's an implication in a period piece that it is the past. Yes. So correct. when does when does it become the past? Yes. I mean, I would think as soon as you're in a new decade, but then it gets into a whole like decade shifting like style conversation. Because I know we obviously we talk about, which is very strange now, the 80s being a time period or I mean, what's period worse piece. is that the 90s The 90s are. That exactly <laughs> where I was going. And then I believe we refer to them as the aughts. I hate that. Is that so because much. I feel like you can watch something and define that as the 80s. That is 90s, obviously, decades and centuries before that. Would you be able to see something created now in 2022? What would be the defining characteristics that you'd be like, that is a aughts period piece? COVID. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like pre-COVID? You're like, yeah, it is like, a period piece because it well, is pre-COVID. All the years of the 2020s have had a COVID thing on them. But what would make something, because I believe people have very much defined I don't know why I'm just stuck on the 80s and 90s right now. I think it's because that's it's our lifetime. <laughs> because that is our lifetime. That is not a period piece. But if you look at the aughts versus the teens, what would be identifiable characteristics between the aughts and the teens? We may be too close to them. Because when we were in the 90s and I looked back to like, I remember like, they say like fashion, stick to fashion, like fashion cyclical. And I can remember like bell bottoms and stuff kind of coming back. And the, like the idea that it, the 70s yep. were bell bottoms-y times. That's a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think you've got to get far enough away from it to even see what the trend is. Like now that the 90s style or at some point it may not be fully coming back, but it's weird to see things in stores and be like, oh, that was the 90s. Like I didn't I knew enough about things like Doc Martens and Mary Jane's and things like that to be like, that's the 90s. But the floral prints of like dresses and like mm -hmm. oversized T-shirts and stuff like that, it didn't actually feel like a style when you're in it. Right. It's later that you're like, why were we wearing giant T-shirts <laughs> and like like biker shorts and giant T-shirts, which I see people wearing now. It's like, true. Like college students are wearing oversized giant T-shirts and like so much so that you can't see their shorts, which is like what my mom's big like complaint was when I was my shirt was so big that she couldn't see that I was wearing shorts. I was. <laughs> well, I do think that you're right. It is fashion and technology. Yeah. 
Those are the first two Great things that you identifier. see. Thank you. It just came to me because you think of shows like we talk about a lot, but Bates Motel. Yeah. It was the one that comes to he- to mind first where it's a modern day show, but it has things in it that make it feel like it's a period piece. Correct. I landlines and the way that they dress i believe there are landlines in it right now that i'm thinking yeah but the way that they dress wasn't too too bad it wasn't too bad but it was not trendy whatsoever yeah but that one was a hard one because they're in like a small town somewhere where you might just think like oh they're like not super trendy kind of a thing i feel like even the way the house is decorated yeah. Well, they move into an old house. This is a very sure. interesting reference that you pulled out of. I know. Well, we I haven't just, talked about it in a really long time. It's funny because that's <laughs> the one that always comes to mind. And I know there are a few shows that do that where you don't know exactly when they're... They could be set in different time periods, yeah. but then something happens and someone pulls out a cell phone. And yeah. you're like, so oh, it's not today. period peri- pieces, specifically, like almost aggressively not a period. Yes. Whereas the shows represented on today's panel are Interview with the Vampire which is coming out now on AMC, which I actually don't know what period, like, I mean, the movie I'm very versed in. Emily's going to fact check in real time what it was. Uh, Dark Winds, which is the 70s. Dickinson, which is uh, great. 17, 1800s. We should know this. Um, And all of those are like very aggressively period pieces. Interview with the Vampire, I think, might be a period piece in the sense well in the movie it's new orleans but then it goes back into lestat's life so in the tv show maybe it can go all the way back into the life of lestat in a quick google when it is set i'm gonna say that that's what they do yep that would make a lot of sense and then just because i feel that we should know the dates that emily dickinson was alive great i should know that and uh, uh, born 1830. Great. Died 1886. Feels like maybe a long life for them. I don't know. 56 years old. Um, definitely a period piece. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Which it is uh, set after the Civil War because, I mean, there are a lot of racial relations in there. But yeah. slaves are free in the show. Great. Uh, you're welcome. But I do love the period I love the twist on the period piece that Dickinson does, which I'm a huge advocate for the show and will demand anyone listening, go watch. Not that I can control that, but I love when people put modern music Mm. and even a little bit of modern language Mm -hmm. into a period piece, but then it still very much feels like a period piece. It's not just, oh, they put on costumes and they call it a period piece, but they play on the modern ideas in that time period and Dickinson just does it so well well it's so nice to be able to do it with young people because I think when you picture especially like the 1800s like picture everything kind of like proper and grown up but like they're teenagers I mean they're like young 20s whatever yeah but like the concept of being like young and being able to play with that so this was this panel was completely pulled out of Jennifer Morgan's brain um and had a few different iterations and a few different desires from it and it's nice because it's got on this panel a production designer and a couple of directors and so really like creating the feel and look and texture of a period piece and like very different periods the 1970s and the 1830s yep so like what goes into that and what did they focus on and when did they you know get to bring in something modern I think is really cool I do have one more question okay great which 
can we cut out if need be? But I do have one more question. So when you're watching old, I'm going to say old movies, but also old TV shows, just movies come to mind. There is a cadence to the way people talk when you're watching something, you know, from the forties, fifties, sixties. And, uh, and that's from scripted things to not reality, but like, I guess, newscast. Do people talk different or did they perform different at that period of time? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, but I don't have any remote answer for you. It's so strange. <laughs> I was just randomly thinking about this the other the day. Only, but... The only piece that I have for it is I recently watched the Sidney Poitier documentary on Apple Plus, TV Plus, and he taught himself to speak and got rid of his Bahamian accent by listening to a radio announcer. And so like his cadence, which was very real, was from a radio guy. But I, I think it might be a little bit of both, but that's just mine. That it's a performance type, but also people just spoke people, differently. People definitely spoke and wrote differently. Like, like I'm reading a book about the 1800s right now, and they read out letters, and they definitely, that's obviously not audible, and it's on paper, and you can tell they are speaking differently, for sure. I just find it fascinating. It is. <laughs> Language, fashion, technology. There you go. Language is, yeah. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. Deep thoughts. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay, so with that, here is another time and place constructing a period piece moderated by Emily Moss Wilson with Mara Lepere Schloop, production designer, Chris Eyre, director of Dark Winds, and Silas Howard, director of Dickinson. This is a really fun conversation because you guys are like in the foxhole, you know, your sleeves rolled up like they're every day on set helping to collaborate and create the stuff that we get to see a lot of hard work and stuff that a lot of us don't know about. And so this is a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, um, but also just kind of talking about things that in, inspire you guys as artists. Um, obviously like these shows, just very briefly, if you could, um, let's talk about, and we can just start with you, Silas, like specifically like where your show is set and maybe like a specific like challenge with that particular uh, time period uh, that you found in in the work. Um, so the the show that I worked on for three seasons and um, and all of the the third season is uh, about Emily Dickinson, um, called Dickinson, and it's set in the 1800s, mid 1800s. And last season was during the Civil War, and uh, and yes, there's a lot of I mean, there's things that came up like we had a, an episode where the you know a young suitor was saying let's jump in the lake, so he he went you know. You would have him take his pants down. He had boxers, but underwear hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> so we had to quickly invent some underwear for him to, to have so that he could jump into the, into the water. But, um, but yeah, just the, all of the, uh, the details of the world really are just, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing to go and, um, you know, and the opera episode too, they don't have, they didn't have electricity, so the lights don't go on and off or, you know, the whole, all of that was uh, interesting to, yeah, come up against. Mara, what about you with interview? Is there a specific challenge? Well, first of all, where it's set. Yeah. Um, the reimagining of this this show, Interview of the Vampires, takes place in 1910 to 1940 in New Orleans, um, which was the era of Storyland, um, which is a lot of people credit as the kind of birthplace of American jazz. So um, it was a real pleasure. It, it, it's an area of New Orleans, a neighborhood that doesn't exist anymore. It was completely leveled um, for a highway system. 
And so as someone who has lived in New Orleans over the last 20 years, it was a really exciting adventure to go down because we had to build it. We built a big back lot that was kind of selections of streets of Storyville and um, it was a really exciting project. I think the thing that, um, as a designer that's done several period television shows, I think television is known for its rigorous pace and demands and not always having scripts and I think that period television is this mm -hmm. kind of um, formidable beast because <laughs> you can't just walk into a space and shoot. You, if it's period, there's so many things that have to be adapted, and the same with the wardrobe, and thing, you, know, you can't just go into a gap and buy um, <laughs> underwear from 1900. So there has to be so much planning that goes into making what often comes out to be about four feature films, because mm. television series are so long. And if you're lucky, you have the scripts, but most often, you don't. So um, it's a real pressure cooker and um, but but it for me I think the the funnest part about it is getting to dive into the research and mm. and showcase things that people may not know about the time periods and and it's really a pleasure to work on period television Chris um, I'm Chris Ayer and I directed Dark Winds uh, the TV series that premiered last night so, thank you <laughs> Uh, that was exciting to see it with a crowd for the first time and hear the jokes and <laughs> hopefully in the right places and if they weren't it was fine as well. You don't often like, get that experience, no right? What. Yeah. Um, and we shot um, in part on the Navajo Nation. It's set in 1971, uh, 50 years ago and ironically we found, and this was interesting in our research, and I knew this, but not a lot has changed mm. in that 50 years. And I say ironically because there are places that don't have electricity and running water. And uh, the inside of the Hogans are somewhat the same traditionally, the traditional Hogans as we portrayed in 1971. Um, the cars are, are different. Uh, it's, it's not like Cuba, you know, where they <laughs> fix up the car and it remains the, <laughs> the same forever, same. but it is, a little bit like that, not, not entirely. So there was like a Pontiac Catalina um, that my grandpa used to have, and I used to play in that car in the 70s. And I just remember that grill and those two lights, it was mm -hmm. like the GTO almost, but bigger. And um, you know, those kind of things are just, um, you know, really stimulate you to this place of just, you know, period beauty. And uh, so it was kind of that, that mixture of this vast landscape, an abyss of desert, mesas and plains, and sparsely you'd put in this kind of period stuff, mm. uh, eight-track tapes, we had eight-track <laughs> tapes, um, um, that kind of thing, and so it was very sparse, um, but not a lot had changed um, in terms of it, it being out there on the res somewhere. Yeah. So it was kind of ironic. Silas, you mentioned details, which obviously in, you know, if this were a stage play, the audience is there, but because we live in a medium of, you know, the camera can be anywhere, it, you know, it's close up on a prop or a piece of the set or whatever. Was there, and anybody can chime in or everybody can chime in, was there a specific detail that you can remember? I mean, the underwear is a great example. That was either, that was really hard to get right can you remember like a specific thing that was like, we had a really big challenge 
on this one thing for one reason or the other? Uh, there definitely were challenges. Um, but, but one of the things that was just awesome to recreate was, um, there's, you know, the Dickinson uses a lot of facts, even though it's an absurdist sort of presentation of it in modern you know, language, so it's hard to tell. But we recreated this um, queer bar that was in New York in the mid-1800s that Walt Whitman used to go to. And it was just amazing to like unearth these places that I did, had never heard about as a long time queer. And uh, so, you know, that was just, yeah, uncovering all these spaces or, or recreating them, uh, the history, it, was, it felt really um, magical. And then, then we had to create the inferno in the Dickinson's house. That was a bit of a challenge. So we had these, like, never-ending stairs, really hard to make infinity stairs, just FYI, um, <laughs> if you're planning on doing it. So there were a lot of, because we live in Emily's head so much in the show, there's a lot of going to these odd spaces. Um, so that's the challenge and the fun of the show, for sure. Yeah. Do you guys remember anything very specific that was something that you're, the collaboration between other you know, department heads, you kind of came together to find something? The exciting thing about vampires is all of the rules of vampires, and, um, and they, they want to be protected during the daytime um, for a variety of reasons. And so I think um, our showrunner, Rollin Jones, has, is a very, uh, has a very dry sense of humor. And um, there were these kind of built-in elements of the protection during the day in their home and, um, and you know, hidden walls, things that you could access so that there would be secret coffin rooms and things like that. And so working with the special effects department, we were, we're trying to make them as fun as possible. And I don't want to spoil too many of them because there are some great things, but you know, we, we had, like I said, secret walls. There were panels that could open. There were secret um, ways to see if it was daylight outside. Um, there was a lazy Susan built into the floor so that a wall <laughs> could spin. Um, and, and again, I think that uh, on a TV schedule, sometimes when you read these things, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Because um, it's not just building in a four-wall set. You now have to build a set that it, it comes, comes apart. apart and, and, and not just for shooting, but also in camera. It has to move and, and uh, manipulate. And I think that um, it, it be, it was a, we had a really game special effects coordinator who I would come to him and I'd say, what if we did this? And he was like, well... All right, let's try it. Um, so I think that those were challenges that were great. I think the thing we didn't anticipate was the nightmare of how heavy coffin lids are <laughs> and um, how often vampires like to open them on camera. <laughs> and um, that was a real nightmare. Um, and I think everyone, I think if you name like the number one problem of Interview with the Vampire, it's coffin lids. Um, but uh, again, we worked with the special effects department to figure out ways to get them to not kill our actors. And um, we had to have multiple versions of the coffins so that you could shoot inside of them and, and see what was happening in them. So um, something I didn't expect. <laughs> um, now I know. I don't want to work with coffins again. Um, we, we, uh, I'm not going to do a spoiler, so I won't say the word, but we were in a confined space underground with rock walls. <laughs> but, um, that was challenging. I mean, I'd, I'd never done that. That's not a practical. That was, um, you know, actually sets that were built. And it was really strange because you read the script and it would say, he's in the passageway. He's in the, the garage. You're like, garage? Wait, this is a, 
and uh, how's their garage and the, like the bat, you know, thing? And it's like, so you're sitting there and you're trying to piece this together. And um, it was a new experience, you know, you turn on a, um, a Zippo, you know, he's walking around, he has a flashlight. You're like, wait, that wall looks like the Flintstones. It looks like that wall, <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden you go, wait, it doesn't really matter which way I'm shooting, it, you know? It's a passageway, it's a hallway, it's a garage, it's a, yeah, it's a living room, whatever you want it to be. So it was kind of interesting because I had this concept of this whole, you know, big space, because, you know, we parked cars in it, there was passageways and all this, but it just turned out to be um, kind of, you could place whatever you wanted in that, that space. Uh, but there were certain points where the character has to look through cracks and, uh, you know, POVs and drops rocks and, you know, shoots their gun and all that stuff. But I had this concept of how difficult it was going to be. And then there was a, below the floor level, there was a, um, a little well. You remember Silence of the Lambs where, you know, it puts the lotion in the basket. Um, there was a family down there. And uh, so it was interesting to shoot in. There was a lot of dust, and uh, we were double-masked, and uh, it was horrible to shoot in. <laughs> well, you brought up something interesting, which was you were describing there for a second, like what it actually said on the page versus like what the experience was shooting it or what it like turned into be. So maybe kind of speak to that. I mean, I know we had we had the pitch competition here yesterday. We have a lot of people, you know, thinking about being writers or currently writing. Um, I guess, you know, again, for anybody, just chime in as part of the conversation. But what is kind of that experience been for you? And it not necessarily even have to be on this show, but just because we're talking about worlds in, in general and world building, what doesn't have to be a historical piece that happens on all TV shows. We have to have this process of creative co collaboration and production designer and director and all that. So I guess just kind of speak to maybe like taking it from page to screen, kind of navigating that journey. And if there is something that was like very different maybe in a scene or a moment or a sequence that you remember, or maybe that you weren't quite sure how you were gonna do that and then kind of what the end result ended up being yeah it's um yeah it's thinking well thinking about the different periods of shows there was another episode that was a time traveling not hot tub but it was a time traveling ar arbor wherever you know yeah. you sit down there's flowers around it can't remember the name of it and uh, then uh, emily dickinson and her sister go to the 50s and they meet sylvia plath um and uh so it was just interesting to look at the details of like that 1860s butting up against 1950s and using sound or sprinklers or all these things to like make these worlds come to life in ways that the camera will see and the actors will react to and as economically as possible. Mm -hmm. um, it always drives me nuts how little gets seen with beautiful production design and uh, I'm transparent. Um, our production designer would do little things that she knew Jimmy Frono, the DP, would gravitate towards. It was like little catnip for him but uh yeah exactly like, but yeah gonna show off your pretty thing, don't worry. yeah yeah but it's um but yeah so it's thinking about that and, and i um heard this from one director that i worked with which is you take that line of action that is could be easily cut and you make make something out of it make something that's really detailed or make it make it uncuttable you know uncutoutable and uh <laughs> and i think that that's that's part of it as well but yeah the world bu building part of it is really all, all in these details um, and a lot of that is in, on the page, it, actually? Or well, I, I have to say, as a, as a TV director who came from indie, 
I was like, well, what am I going to do as a director? There's so much to do, even with shows that I don't work on, you know, repeatedly, because uh, because of all of those elements. People can't track it. They're doing the whole season, so your job is to babysit the episode and do as good of a job as you can, because yeah. um, there there is a lot. There's, you know, your point of view is going to bring a lot to where you put the camera and how you work the actors. So. I think those are the added elements, and that's the fun part, is there is room to uh, expand and define things. I'm one of the first people that's hired on shows. Um, the production designer starts very early with the locations team to start hashing out the strategy of what's built and what's the location, and the scripts are a good bible of like your set list of what the things you're looking for are. Um, but usually when I am working on a period show, um, and you're fixed in one place or maybe of units in specific places, you start to strategize like where and how to do things and if it doesn't exist, what has to be built. Um, and when I'm working with the locations team, I usually say, okay, this is the concrete list of what's scripted, but now here's a reference package that I've given you of like what I've discovered in my research of things that were interesting from that time period. And like you as this expert of this location hub, what, what things do you know of that um, aren't in the script but that we could help pitch as, so to give us more scope and scale in a show? And so I always have this secondary list of things of like, and, 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 and I leave it open-ended and I say, you tell me what's great here and, and let's try to get to that. And I've been really fortunate to work with writers and showrunners who embrace that strategy to say, um, you know, we, you know, let's not fit a, a square peg into a round hole, let's, let's, let's adapt and, and pivot. And I think those are the best production experiences when you have a team of people who are just trying to get the most on screen as opposed to fixating on something that isn't producible. Um, and an example of this in a really big way was the show that I worked on before interview was um, called Pachinko. And um, there was an episode, episode seven, which was a departure episode, and it was about the great Kanto earthquake in 1923. And it was a standalone, and it was like a huge, giant movie in and of itself, in that it was like 24 hours over the course of a massive earthquake in Yokohama. And so everything- Easy? So easy, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and we, you know, it was like there, it, anyway, it was, it was huge and great crazy, and so, um, that was one that we just kind of like broke apart in pieces and just in and we had a director in DP that also said you know what instead of putting the onus all on Mara and me of building everything let's change the aspect ratio and let's change the POV for this departure episode because it's a different character so that it's first person so it's more experiential and we can get lost in the smoke and things can happen and so again it's like the amazing thing about the medium of film or television is that it's not a singular art form. You're not working alone. And the best projects usually come about when you have people who are all trying to kind of help each other get the best thing, you know, lifted up the hill. Um, when you have people that are kind of trapped <laughs> in, in, on the page, or and, and, and that's not to say that that's wrong, but it does make it all the more challenging because you have to make an exacting thing, and this isn't an exacting art. Yeah, I just say that it's 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 a marvel to me still the things that I see people do in terms of production design and creativity and coming up with things and being able to, um, like you said, compartmentalize something so it's approachable. Sometimes I read something on the page, I go, "What the? How am I? How are we gonna? You know that that doesn't? You know I can't digest it." And so, you know, you take it into chunks and you 
go, okay, I can figure that out, you know? And, and you trust, um, you know, Mark Garner was the production designer on Dark Winds, and he did a fabulous job. And, you know, like I said with the, the cave, it's like, um, I just, I just trust in the team also. So, I mean, you know, when he opens that, you know, that setup or we start to talk about the set in practical terms by walking over to it, you know, it's like, now this is here. Yes, that's here. Oh, and then this is here, even though the wall looks the same. You know, this kind of thing where you're getting the minutia of it. Well, because, you know, and you start to break it apart which is really interesting. So I'm always fascinated by the, the application of your creatives and your keys, which you should trust. I mean, that's one of the things is like, literally it's not you that's like carrying the ball all the time. It's like, let me, let me throw passes and let people catch and score. I mean, you have to step back and say, let me, what, what was the intention? How does that work? Um, and trust that team. So. There were just a lot of those um, incidences where I'm always, you know, just surprised and in love with the uh, the collaborators that, that we get to work with. Um, and so we did um, a whole Main Street up in Española, uh, New Mexico, and, you know, he changed all the buildings and the awnings and the signage, and we had a hero one-screen theater, you know, because it was the big, you know, meal of the street and um, you know there wasn't a direction that I couldn't look you know and it's just because he applied you know his budget really resourcefully to knowing what we were doing and then it's just always a marvel to me that like wow huh <laughs> this works really well <laughs> well and to your point you built an entire new city and then I mean I don't know, I don't know do you just tear it that like after it's all over with, where, what happens to it? You know, I've been lucky to build a few backlots, um, and uh, I did a show called The Alienist several years ago, and at the time we built um, the, <laughs> um, the largest backlot in Europe in Budapest, and it was, you know, like a total of like 15 city blocks that were six or seven stories high. And we, uh, the show was supposed to run for six seasons, it did not, but um, but it was engineered for a 30-year build. So we actually put, you know, we had we had basements in the street that you could go down into and steel structure that went down into the ground. And um, the, it was an investment by the studio to build this like long-term thing. And it's funny because now I see it all the time <laughs> in other televisions, television and movies. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that a while ago. Um, and so that that was a really rewarding backlot to build. It was very, very difficult, but it was, it was great. And then for Pachinko, we built um, the Ikuna Ward, which is a Korean neighborhood in Tokyo in the 1920s, and that again was like 20 meandering little blocks, and we built that in Vancouver. Um, and that, because they don't know where the second season was gonna be shot, we packed the whole thing up into a warehouse, and that is sitting somewhere waiting to be told where the second season's gonna be. Um, the backlot that we built for interview, we built in New Orleans East in a, an old Home Depot parking lot. <laughs> and, um, and because, again, like the urgency of television, it's so fast, um, a lot of the times the, the fortitude that we had on the alienists to build for 35 years, you don't always have the luxury of that time to build the structure in. And so for interview, it was built um, basically for the season. And as we all know, in New Orleans, we're coming up on hurricane season. 
AMC owns the rights to all of Anne Rice's canon, so they are actually in production right now on the Mayfair Witches. So they're scrambling to take advantage of much of that set as they can before hurricane season comes in and potentially takes it away. Um, actually, while we were filming, uh, a tornado uh, hit two blocks from our set and our green screens blew over while we were all in st on the stage in, in New Orleans. It was pretty intense. But I think uh, it really, it kind of hits home sometimes. You're like, my background is in architecture. And the, the fun thing about film and television is that it, you get to do these like really quick shreds. You know, you're constantly doing new designs and doing things. But times like that when you're like, oh, right, these things could kill people. <laughs> um, you do, it does hit home how important it is to, to, to be aware of the impact of, of your big builds and, and what's happening. I like that you brought up your background because I was I was curious as you guys were talking, you know, obviously this panel, you're, you guys are directors, you're production designer, um, but this panel just in general is kind of a, a world building concept, including props and costumes. What is your background and how did you kind of get into, you know, directing for you two and, and obviously we know architecture, but maybe give us a little more of that transition. I have no, uh, no architecture or, uh, <laughs> I was in a punk band for 10 years. That prepared That me is applicable. Quite well, it did prepare me for filmmaking, most definitely. Um, but I, I fall in love with stories that are often unique and take place in different times and usually the past is present in the story, you know, like whatever is happening there is still happening now. So um, I love uh, the ability, even with Dickinson, to have a period piece, period show with, with humor and comedy, you know, Jane Krakowski and these like, and those, those dresses are beautiful, but they're so corseted in, it's insane. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then, so yeah, I just think it's, uh, I'm really interested in worlds through different lenses and certainly history through different lenses because history is a bit of a problem. <laughs> was there something that you saw in like your, as you were kind of coming up that was really like, that stayed with you that, you know, you think about often or inspired you in some way? Um, I mean, movies did in general, you yeah. know, like a lot of those movies from the 70s to, uh, you know, uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest or Midnight Cowboy. But, um, but no, I, after I made my first feature, I was like, oh, I never want to do that again. That almost <laughs> killed me. <laughs> And, uh, but then I fell in love with this story about Billy Tipton. So he was a jazz musician through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and Same then music? Punk music, band? Exactly. And there? so I learned a lot about jazz. And he, you know, when he died, it was discovered he had been born female. But the jazz world and his sons that were adopted and his wife didn't know. And so, um, so yeah, it got me to learn a lot. And there is, yeah, music is connected. I think even just the rhythm of a scene or you know, in production design, the rhythm of certain um, columns or, you know, yeah, it just, it's so amazing to see what production designers do. Like, <laughs> on the movie I just finished, um, I was shooting a, we were doing a scene at a cafe, and I wanted to get my girlfriend some flowers, and I was like, oh my god, this most beautiful, you know, it was like, plant perfectly right there. I was going to go buy, a, you know, a whole bunch of them. And I went, and I'm like, there's nobody there. And, and my, my assistant goes, and there's like a little basket with eggs, and you know, like all this little farmer's market. And <laughs> my assistant goes, I'm going to blow your mind. And she throws an egg at me, and it's rubber. It's our, it's our production. <laughs> I went to buy all flowers from our... The ultimate compliment. I was you like, tried I to take them all. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was really amazing. So anyway. What was that transition from architecture into production design for you? Um, so I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and there is a really great um, youth theater company there called Mosaic Youth Theater of Detroit, and they have a technical theater department, um, 
And so they came to my school when I was like nine years old and I was like, that is so cool. Um, and so at 11, I got into technical theater design and started um, you know, learning about light forward operating and stage managing and set design and um, just loved it. Thought theater was the funnest thing in the world, um, but didn't think of my, my father is an engineer and he was like, that's not a real job. Um, and so he was like, if you, you, know, you want to get into design, think about architecture, which I did and got my master's degree in architecture, worked as an architect for a little while and um, was bored out of my mind. <laughs> and uh, Hurricane Katrina actually, I was working in New Orleans, hit and the firm I was working for was contracted by FEMA to do inspections. And so for months, we were going door to door, assessing houses in, uh, with their damage. And again, talking about depressing, um, that was uh, an eye-opening experience just to see that much devastation. Um, and I had made a documentary in college about ar architecture and how <laughs> the Americans, American perspective on architecture and how it's impacted by home improvement reality television shows. Um, <laughs> And a friend of a friend had seen it, and he randomly called me one day and said, this is super weird, but um, do you want to art direct a movie? And I was like, anything <laughs> to get out of this. And it was about um, home assessment by insurance adjusters during hurricanes. So I just had all this experience doing that, essentially. And so I went thinking this is just going to be a summer project. Like, this will just be something I do to kind of tide me over so I can go back to architecture and that was over 15 years ago. Um, so, you know, you know, everyone always asks, how do you get into film? And I think um, a lot of people just kind of trip into it. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, when people ask, what should I go to school for to, to, to go into film? Honestly, the thing I always say is, go have life experience because that life experience informs what you are able to contribute to a, to a show. So whether you're in a punk band or whether you did a youth theater group, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, um, we're, I know it's cliche, we're storytellers, this is what we do. You gotta be able to tell a story and you have to have lived to, to have done that. And I would just add that I, I tripped my way into it after 20 years <laughs> working for free. Because I always, I always hate to paint the picture of it happening. You know, you're like an overnight success 20 years later or whatever. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell well, us about yourself. I, I was inspired by a, a school event as well when I was young. Um, the Harlem Globetrotters visited my school, <laughs> and that didn't work out for me in basketball. <laughs> but um, I, I did pick up a camera when I was in high school, and I started doing photography at nauseam, and it's probably because I wasn't good socially, and it turned into this after, you know, 30 years, or maybe I was in high school 40 years, I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, it's true, it's life experience, and um, you know, I think, um, along with what you were saying, you know, I'm emotional, you know, I'm an emotional person, and that either gets kind of uh, squelted by, you know, the world in terms of you go along to get along, or you remain fighting and telling the stories that you want to tell to get that out, to get that exercise out. And I think that's kind of what we do as storytellers and creators is, you know, we've learned to channel our, you know, our energy through the stories. And um, life experience is, is just such a, a big part of that. Um, you know, for me, I, uh, I've always tried to put Native people on screen, Native American people on screen. Um, 
And so that's just kind of my love. And that's like a lifelong pursuit where you're just saying, look, you don't understand. I need to tell you something. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, wait, I got to tell you something, you know? And you're, you're constantly trying to push that ball, you know, up the hill. And, you know, it's, it's never going to... Um, Thank God we have that, you know, thank God we have something that we want to do. Um, you know, I see a lot of our times in society and, um, you know, it's a blessing to have something to push against, you know, to fight against, to rail against, because that's what makes the world go round, you know? And so um, for young filmmakers and stuff, I just, I just say, you know, there's that story that, that I think it was a Meryl Streep story, which is the actress comes up to her and says, I wanna, I wanna be an actress, what do you think? And she says, I don't think you should do it. <laughs> and the girl goes, why not? And she says, because if you ask, you're never gonna make it. Mm. You know, you just have to do it. And I think we get here by happenstance, you know? I mean, it wasn't my goal, and I'm surprised I'm sitting here today. <laughs> you know? It wasn't my goal, it just, you know, you just keep connecting the dots and doing it in a good way, and things happen, you know? Yeah, I mean, the first film that I made was, uh, we, I hadn't made a short, hadn't made anything, and people were like, maybe you should make a short first, and we're like, nah, we'll just make a feature. <laughs> you know, three years later, uh, it almost killed us, but it's been, you know, it was really a rewarding thing, and we didn't know all the rules, so we broke rules, or we learned them and broke them, and, uh, and we did it because we had an urgent need to tell this story, and it wasn't it wasn't out there. And that's a it's a big motivating, uh, still a motivating factor in all of my work is to shift who's in the center of the story and and the rules that they get to not have to follow. Because there's a lot of rules for who's in, in the center of the story <laughs> if they're not the usual suspects. So it sounds like you guys there's a there's a following of curiosity, like and it's just like oh I want to know more about this. This is interesting, and that leads to something else, and then it. You know, opens up. Did you guys have anything? Um, I know you kind of spoke to something that that you had seen, but did you guys have anything, either film or television, that was like a, a, a big thing that stuck with you through your childhood or your formative creative years that you kind of always go back to, or that you know? <laughs> My mother was a public school teacher, and we were only allowed to get movies from our library, and they only had like four. Um, and Lady Hawk, um, uh, Splash, um, Watership Down, um, and I don't remember what the last one was, but um, but I definitely credit. Oh, you were joking with four, but you really meant four. Oh no, and we watched them all the time. Like my sister and I know like every word to Lady Hawk, um, but I credit Lady Hawk <laughs> to like why I do period now. Like I think that there's something just deep, deep down, um, which is very strange that that would be the movie that got, that got me into it. I did study some film, and I just remember, you know, uh, John Ford and, you know, Stagecoach and the horses going one way and then the other way, and everybody said, that's really stupid because why didn't they just shoot the first horse and stop the Stagecoach, you know? And um, there were all those ironies when you got to movies with native people in them. But you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is incredible. Uh, Little Big Man, one of my favorites. So we put Little Big Man on the marquee in the first episode uh, in 1971. But those were the things that really stuck with me is just kind of those John Ford movies and John Wayne was in those and he was the, you know, the, he was the guy, he was the American, you know, 
American guy, you know? And so we have some dig at him in the series now where they talk about his, uh, you know, I hate to give it away, but they talk about his bowel movement or, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they make fun of him a little bit, but, you know, he deserves it. It's fine, you know? Um, and so, you know, there's that, that Western, and I was kind of thinking of the Western as we shot in the Southwest, yeah. and, um, you know, you think of all those great movies. You know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, on one hand you have the errors of some movies, Birth of a Nation, you know, uh, but in my mind, and I can't speak for anybody else, I mean, you know, they're a marker of the time and the reflection of the, the things that we're trying to correct. And so you can't just, you know, push them out so people can't study what the consciousness of the time was for people. And so basically, you know, things like Dances with Wolves is a great movie. And then every once in a while you go, huh, that's kind of really surfacey, you know? <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, the leather and feather Indians and, yeah. you know, romanticizes. And everybody laughs about uh, Mary McDonald who had her hair all, Wilma Flintstone, again, the Flintstones, and dirt all over her face. And all my Lakota friends were like, we, we would have treated our guests better than that. We would have wiped her off and combed her hair and we wouldn't have let her just walk around the village like that. We're good people, you know? And so, you know, you have all these funny things in the movies and um, it's just kind of one of those, you're influenced by the good and the bad and, uh, you know, you kind of imitate some of them and then some of them, you, you know, flop over, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting. Uh, that's an interesting thought, and that made me think of an, an additional question. And, and we'll, maybe we'll end on, on this question, and I'll open it up. But um, with sort of like the world of social media now, and sort of like the opportunity, I guess, for people to kind of pick apart, particularly here talking about historical pieces, and pick apart the details, and pick apart the accuracy, and all of that stuff, have you guys found any challenges with that or that it's like informed certain decisions that you've made on set, like knowing that that's a possibility or maybe just kind of speak to that? I guess the main thing is, uh, you know, I'm trying to do authentic casting and authentic, you know, build from the ground up something if you're doing any kind of new representation. Because, you know, I've grown up watching films that, di that didn't represent my life, and if they're a good story, I connected. So that math works every which way, you know. They can, anyone can connect to a good story that's told, you know, from the ground up. And so I think that that's, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but th those details of, of what's true or not, you know, I just think are important. And sometimes- Secondary-ish to the actual emotional. Well, yeah, they're, they're supporting it. Sometimes I even feel like it's spell casting, you know, like I put a, a, a picture of a, of a friend who had died um, from complications of uh, HIV, and uh, and I put uh, the, it was on transparent. I put her picture behind Tambor's head because I knew that wouldn't get cut. So, but um, but you know, there's objects and props that people will bring in sometimes that build the world. And I think yeah, as real as you can make it, uh, I think that's that's really important. And it's uh, yeah. Again, I don't know if that answers the question. No, it definitely, it definitely did. I mean, what I'm hearing you saying is that like yes, those like super accuracies are important, but if the, if the story's there, oh, yeah. 
then it's... It's more emotional for me than, than yeah. the accuracy. Although, you know, with Dickinson, they followed so many true things that the experts, the Dickinson experts were very happy, even though there was a lot of liberties, tons of liberties taken. But yeah, that's the only one I care about is sort of the emotional and character uh, life uh, representation. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, every show is so different with what the requirements, and I think a huge part of filmmaking right now has to do with clearance and legal aspects, which is oh, yeah. like a, the bane of my existence. But um, but I think, you know, every I worked on a, another series called Mrs. America, which was about the women's movement in the 70s, and there was so much of what we were allowed to do, we were painstakingly recreating um, political conventions and um, different events that are documented on film. And, um, and part of us being able to recreate them was that we had to, be, to meticulously replicate what had been made. And, um, or other times we couldn't depict them and had to completely depart from what they had. Mm -hmm. So you have to go through an entire process up front with script clearance and all sorts of things to kind of navigate what it is that you're allowed to show and what the, the confines of that are. And um, on Mrs. America, we probably, I think we had 12 graphic designers um, because we recreated at, four different political conventions, the tickets, the signage, the, um, the banners, the, the brochures, the packets that were sent out in advance of that, the stamps that were sent out in advance. All of those things had to be made, and even though they're only on screen, sometimes they're not even on screen, um, <laughs> but for a fleeting second, um, that type of world building for me as an audience member is, is what really draws me into things, and it also makes me want to investigate things further. But it also creates a world for the directors and the, the actors that's so immersive that you know I'd like to think that it helps cultivate better performances and things like that when you're in when you're able to really inhabit a period space um, in a way that that has all those textures and details. You know, we had um, we joke that it's the um, Oh gosh, which it's the Sex in the City that we all really wanted, um, and that you had, you know, Betty Friedan, and you know, you had all these like amazing women that were you actually want to aspire to, not just who you think you would have sex with, um, and uh, and uh, and so for us, you know, in the art department, it was like, how do we flush out their home environments in a way? that really show who they are as individuals. And so, you know, um, there were some characters that we knew a ton about and we, we had photos of their homes and there were others that we had nothing but kind of written narratives of experiences that people had had in their spaces. And so really spending a lot of time flushing those things out and, and making that happen. How, what's the length of time, the lead time that you usually get with something like that? Um, it, it varies um, on some shows, you know, for television on average, I'm usually on anywhere from three months to six months to sometimes seven or eight months before we actually start shooting. Um, and usually I'm on before the art department fully starts, so I usually have a month of just like locking myself in a room and like becoming an expert on all weird things of that time period. Um, so that if I don't have that period of gestation of really sinking things in, the rigor and pace of television is so extreme, there's no time to stop and go back and look things up. Like if I don't know the answer, we're gonna make it up. And like, you know, we ha you have to kind of always be on top of it so that when, and it's the same, I'm, 
in a tenfold for directors where you're in the moment, you have to have an answer. You have to know and you have to be confident in that because you have hundreds of people waiting to, to execute those things. Chris, you're nodding vigorously. Um, I guess like speak to that a little bit like the, the when, you're, when you're there, when the cameras are set up and the actors are there and maybe something isn't right or there's a question or whatever, like how do you navigate? That's, that's some of the worst feeling, I can tell you. <laughs> when the clock's ticking and you're like, wait a minute, everybody stop. <laughs> Just stop, everybody stop. Let me think about this. And, and it rarely happens, but it is a consideration sometimes that you don't let the whole thing just keep spinning. It has to have direction. And authenticity is really important. Uh, I remember one incident where I was shooting and there was a, a Native American gentleman and another one debating one another and it turned into yelling. And I had a, a cultural consultant come to me and say, we would never do that out of respect and deference for you know the conversation. And I said, okay. And then I said, stop. And I recalled drama, <laughs> which is, <laughs> these guys were fighting about blood law, meaning they would kill one another for their belief system. If, they, if somebody turned against the tribe, they had the right to kill you know, that person in traditional culture. And I said, I don't know if I buy that. Because if these guys are debating you know, their blood law, I think they might talk over each other you know, in this instance. And so you, know, you have to stop and go, wait a minute. There's best practices, but then you also have to look at it as a creative and say, what is my intuition in this? And I ended up letting them step on each other, yeah. you know, and went you know, past what the consultant was advising. Because he may have been romanticizing, you know, for all I know. And there was another instance where there was a piece of music that was given to me as a consideration for the, the film, and it was sung by a gentleman. And we wanted to use it, and I said, I don't think we can use that. And the attorneys said, yeah, well, I think it's okay. And I said, I don't think we can use that. Because there aren't intellectual property, there's not copyright for intellectual property. Like, this is a song that is not written down, but it is a community's song. How do you account for that in legal terms? Right. So I said, that is not his right to assign that song to, this, to us. It's not his property. Just because it hasn't been copywritten doesn't mean that it's his. It hasn't been copywritten because people don't want to copywritten. So we can't ascribe that to him and then buy it from him and say it's his. It's a community song. So I, I you know, went to the attorneys and I said, I, I don't think we can use that and had to explain that. So I mean, there's best practices, but there's also you as a producer and director and production designer and artist, and you have to go, wait a minute, let me just think this through a little bit. And you know, the thing is about native culture, it's a living culture. So just because somebody says this is the way it was doesn't mean that's the way it should be. If you think it's a living culture, you go, wait a minute, I can change that too. If I can own the story, and that's our job is to own the story. And so, you know, you can contribute to it. And I think as you get older, you understand like, okay, this is best practice, but I'm controlling the story here. So having those thoughtful conversations with and coming to a like collective decision about it. I'm opposed to a lot of the, you know, the historical representation of the 
culture has been through Madonna, you know, ap appropriating it. And so, yeah, we had, there's a lot of really distinctive moves and, and, and ways of uh, walking a category in the eight, late 80s and early 90s when the show was taking place. And so there was a lot of conversations and a lot of icons and legends that were in the, when we did those, the balls, they were all people from ballroom. So it was just a, like a party, like a crazy wow. party. And um, so it was all this intergenerational conversation. But yeah, the history is not, is not, you know, really recorded in the way that we have all the other uh, history recorded. So a lot of times when I was pr producing directing, directors would come in and I would have them meet with Michael or Twiggy, one of our consultants, and go through and watch these really amazing YouTube clips of like walking category and sort of really see it and play. And uh, you know, Michael teaches that, he teaches Vogology, and so he had all the, but it's all just like, little bits and pieces yeah, here so you got the yeah, other very it's very little uh, windows but not yeah, like the whole picture yeah exactly it's a, a much more oral history as well well we have time for a question or two from you guys oh first hand went up there yes what can we use as writers like going into the pitch of we've thought about this we know you're going to say we're not hearing <laughs> period but we've thought about this like what's something that we can use as like put in our tool belt to kind of get ahead of that Period shows are usually bigger shows too, which is a consideration. The only thing I would say is knowing specifically what the world is so that you can control, like the one, the, the project that I had about Billy Tipton, it was Oklahoma, it was smaller clubs, it wasn't, you know, Cotton Club and, um, uh, and Harlem. So I think just how you're seeing the world, is, it an, is there anything anachronistic or, you know, just knowing those details so that it's not, you know, just an entire, I guess it is crazy. Once you when you go and shoot anything, period, you got all the cars and then all, and then all the you know added visual effects. It's it's a lot of work. So yeah, so I guess thinking about the scope would be one thing. Yeah, I think so. I think you know, like a show like The Alienist, for example, that was attempted to be made for over 35 years before they finally made it, and it went millions of dollars over budget and all sorts of things. Um, and I think that. You know, there's a difference between writing a show like The Alienist, which is about New York streets at the turn of the century that's huge and epic and every other scene is an exterior that doesn't exist anymore, versus a quiet, reflective period piece that's mostly interior. And so I think it's like knowing what your budget realm is and being very aware that like um, every new set is going to cost money. Like you don't get there's no benefit of like, oh, you're in you know, Albuquerque and you're gonna get to take advantage of this other thing. Like anybody that has to walk in there is gonna have to, to do, it'll have to be manipulated for a period. Um, and so just being very conscientious of like how many sets there are, how many people there are in every scene, you know, for, it's the same for wardrobe, you know, every single costume for background usually has to be created. Um, it's not just your hero characters. So it's just, it's aware that for period, your, your costs are exponential. And, um, and knowing, you know, if you're gonna write a very specific period piece that's at about an event or a place, um, an idea of where and how you're gonna do that um, so that there's a production strategy in place instead of um, kind of throwing it on the creative team to figure out how to do that is, is always a challenge as well. All right, well, that's time, but I thank these three fascinating panelists for their wealth of knowledge. 
You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.